There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. own episode is another one that comes from the pen of Richard Matheson filtered through Rod Sailing. Now we've seen it before with and when the sky was opened and in that case Sailing took the core of Richard Matheson's idea and he molded it into his own thing. Now this time round the short story Third from the Sun that Richard Matheson had published in a magazine called Galaxy Science Fiction. Sailing actually kept a basic sort of A to B of the story, but he he really needed to flesh it out to actually make it something that was passable on television. In the short story, you have a family, they wake up, we find that the world is teetering on the brink of destruction, and through their conversations we learn that they have a plan to meet up with their neighbours, get into an experimental aircraft and leave the planet and go to another world. So they wake up, we hear all those things, they get on the spaceship and they leave and then we have the twist. So there's really not much to the story, it's just really, that is pretty much it fleshed out to a few more pages. They wake up, they get on the ship and they go. It's all about the twist. It, there's really not much else to it. And in that sense, it's successful enough. You know, it sells the twist. I suppose if you if you didn't quite know, so Rod Sailing took that and gave us the episode that we'll be discussing tonight. And the way Rod Sailing tells it, we meet William Sterker, played by Fritz Weaver. And he comes out of some sort of facility, a government facility, I guess. And... As he's coming out, he meets up with a man called Carling. Hold the light, will you, Sterker? Long days, huh? Hmm? Long days. Your department's going full blast, isn't it? It's coming, boy. It's really coming, and a big one, too. While we're talking here, I bet the military's getting all set. <laughs> Got it all mapped out, I bet. Talk is 48 hours. Wait and see if I'm not right. 48 hours, we'll have them aloft. Then whoosh, up, over, and whammo. There goes the enemy. Obliterated, finished. But what are they doing in the meantime? What do you mean, what are they doing? Probably retaliating the best way they can. <laughs> it's a big waste of time, let me tell you. We get the first licks, so they can't do much. They can go whoosh, up, over, and whammo, 
Absolutely. But not so many, not so properly aimed, not so skillfully carried out. So instead of losing 50 million people, we lose only 35, hmm? You a defeatist, Sterka? That's dangerous thinking. You better mind what you say. And what I think, too, hmm? Yeah. And what you think. Now, it's going to be tempting to use a lot of these scenes that Carling is in because... You know, while that was a pretty straightforward conversation, later on these conversations take on a different vibe and they're very loaded, if you like. Now, the character of Carling is purely a creation for the television show. Like I said, the, the short story is pretty much a straightforward thing whereby the family get away with no obstacles, but it just wasn't enough to base a whole television episode on. There had to be some obstacle along the way something to ramp up the tension and that something is calling and I think he's played wonderfully by Edward Andrews quitting time at the plant time for supper now time for families time for a cool drink on a porch time for the quiet rustle of leaf laden trees that screen out the moon and underneath it all behind the eyes of the men Hanging invisible over the summer night is a horror without words. For this is the stillness before storm. This is the eve of the end. First broadcast on the 8th of January, 1960. Written by Rod Serling and, like I said, based on a short story by Richard Matheson. And the director this time round is Richard L. Bear. Now, Richard Bear directed his own his fair share of Twilight Zones. He directed To Save Man, I think, which is a really popular episode. There's a nice interview with him in the book Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone by Stuart Stanyard. And he tells a nice little story about the first time that he met Rod Serling. He says, The day I first met Rod Serling, I was astounded. Instead of meeting someone whom I had expected to be a tall, thin and bespeckled, and somewhat introverted writer, Rod barged into Buck Houghton's office with the energy of a whirlwind. He grabbed my hand and said he had heard some good things about me. He was short and stocky, and looked like he'd been a quarterback at Notre Dame. He had a grin a mile wide and told me, welcome aboard, and then ducked out. So after meeting with Carling at that facility, Staker goes home and... As he does, there's a great shot. What I guess we're supposed to think is it's a typical American street, and I'm guessing the shot must have been handheld because Steadicam wasn't invented then, but it's just going along the street and there's a lot of movement in the frame, quite smooth, but still it just creates quite a uneasy atmosphere. And then when Staker gets home, we hear this rather bizarre music, and once you know the twist, you actually know why the music is what it is but without that you just kind of think what the hell is that and it's actually called teddy blues by a man called jacques lazary Staker gets home and starts to talk to his daughter and 
Again we see that everything is filmed slightly off kilter. The camera's more often than not at an angle, so I guess we should talk about that first, get that out of the way. You see, once you know the twist, and I will spoil the twist for anyone who hasn't seen the episode yet, so if you haven't, maybe it's time to switch off for the moment. But once you do know the twist, you'll know that they're on an alien planet. It's like Earth, but it, not completely. So these things are kind of peppered throughout the episodes, that strange music that Staker's daughter was listening to. If you look at the artwork on the walls, it's very unusual as well. And certain details about the car later on that they drive as well. Richard Bear was using all these techniques to make it seem otherworldly. And he said this, he said, I shot every scene with an extremely wide angle lens. Even on close-ups, which are normally shot with a 75mm or 100mm lens, I used a 28mm. And then the producer Buck Houghton said, he used wide-angle lenses all the time on the theory that if you're going to tell people in the end that they weren't on Earth, you should have a peculiar feeling while you're getting there. You should have been made a little restless or uncomfortable. And while Dick was a very straightforward sort of director, He'd have to have a big reason not to use an eye-level camera. He was shooting up under tables and past flashlights to people's faces and all that sort of thing, which I thought was very clever of him. It was an idea that I applauded. And there's another quote in that book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, specifically about this episode that kind of talks about that, and Bear said, I invited Rod and Carol to a party up on Mulholland Terrace and got to know them better. I got to know him better that night than I had ever had at the studio. Alcohol does loosen one up and Rod confessed that the job I had done on Third From The Sun was exemplary and that of all the shows to date he liked that one the best. And I know why he liked it. I used wide angle lenses on every shot, even the close ups were made with a 28mm. I tilted and cocked every scene to give a sense of uneasiness. Since the cast was making plans to fly to another planet and avoid an impending H-bomb attack. Working with actors like Fritz Weaver, Edward Andrews and Joe Moros is a pleasure because they need no direction and of course to avoid bumping into one another. So I think the, the benefit of this is kind of twofold isn't it? This, this atmosphere he's creating, he's, he's both creating a, the feeling that when you look back on the episode you'll notice that things weren't quite as they are on our world but he's also creating an uneasy kind of vibe to the whole thing that on first viewing you kind of think that maybe these things are there to put you on edge because it is quite a suspenseful piece but it's just masking the true intention so it's it's doing both really i guess it is ramping up that suspense but it's masking the true intentions of the episode and that's to to pull the rug out from under you at the end. Everyone I've talked to lately, they've been noticing it. Noticing what, Joe? That something's wrong. That something's... Well, something's in the air. That something's going to happen. And everybody's afraid. So Staker by this point is just a bag of nerves. He's carrying this burden of knowing that this terrible destruction is on its way and he's also carrying the burden of the plan that he's hatched as well. Are they going to get away with it? Sit down on the bed a moment, Eve. Yeah. I want to tell you something. Sit down. We're leaving. You and Jody and I and Jerry and Anne. We're leaving tonight. Leaving? 
Leaving for where? I can't tell you that. I can only tell you that sometime between midnight and one, we've got to be out of here and gone. And no one is to know. I mean no one. Not neighbors, not relatives, not even Jody. She's not to know. And we won't be able to tell her until we're already on our way. Dad? Jerry Ryden's down here. He'd like to talk to you. So like I say, there's this huge burden of knowledge, the nerves of the escape plan. Will it go to plan? And a certain amount of paranoia that the government will find out about it, which is played really nicely in a scene where William talks to his neighbour Jerry and Jerry is the neighbour who's going to be flying this experimental plane that they're going to use to escape from the planet and they do this whole charade where Jerry comes over and William says that he's going to take a look at his watch and they go downstairs and they and they turn on an electric drill to mask the noise of their speech just in case anyone is listening and it turns out there's a potential hitch to the plan because the guard that they expected to be on won't be on. Now Fritz Weaver, who plays William Sterker, he really plays this kind of role well, I think. I personally remember him mostly from George Romero's movie Creepshow, where he's playing a really kind of on-edge guy, you know, he's skating insanity almost at times after he discovers this creature in a crate under some stairs and the creature kills a janitor so he goes to his friend for help and he's just a mess you know but in creep show he's barely containing it he like i say he's on the he's on the verge of a breakdown from what he's seen but here he has to keep up appearances and i think the standout scene in the episode for me has to be the card game William organises this card game with his neighbour Jerry for both of the families to be together at one time. It's a setup for the escape, it's a normal activity that's an excuse for them to be together so that they can leave together. And again there's some really wonderful techniques used to film it. There's an opening shot where the camera is at the centre of the card table and it revolves so you can see every person sitting at the table and that's a shot where they actually had to bring in a fourth wall. But yeah, this scene is the main thing in the episode for me. The, the tension is just palpable. Everyone's just waiting for that moment when they're going to leave. And then Carling shows up. But there's a nice little touch when he does turn up. Staker's wife, Eve, says that she's going to get everyone some lemonade and cake. And Jerry pulls out a piece of paper with a diagram of what planet they're going to go to on it and the direction they're headed and so on. And he's shown it to William. Well, Stucker, little cards tonight, eh? Little cards, Carling. We're just about to cut into a cake. You care to join us? Well, thank you. Just a little lemonade for me. I was just telling your wife that she makes wonderful lemonade. Hot night, too. This is a night for a front porch or sleep, but nothing else. All right, you are. So is it just a coincidence that he asks for lemonade at the beginning? Or has he heard through some listening device that they're going to have lemonade and he's just throwing that out there just to mess with them? Like I say, I think it's really nicely done. And they don't dwell on it too long. They just kind of put that out there and then he moves on. But this is why I love the character of Carling. A lot of the times what he says could just be normal conversation, but everything is so loaded you you don't know how much or how little he knows he could know nothing and he's just trying to bluff you know just hint that he knows something 
or he could know everything and he's just toying with them. He reminds me of the character that Christopher Waltz played in the movie Inglorious Bastards and it's that same kind of deal where where it's a character who might know everything or he might know nothing but either way he's going to make you feel really uneasy when he speaks to you and he's just going to feed you enough information to keep you on edge. There is one more scene of tension when they arrive at the spaceship that they're going to use to escape the planet but Carling is there waiting for them so obviously he did know quite a bit but as we know they overpower him and they get on the ship and they leave the planet. The eagle-eyed out there might notice that the ship interior is actually from the film Forbidden Planet. So they get into the ship and and they leave basically and that's when we they drop the big twist ending. Stars look far away. They are far away. But the one we want, that's not so far, Bill. See it there? It's the shiny one. The bright one over on the right. It's hard to believe there are people there. People like us. People like us. It's the third planet from the sun, Bill. It's called Earth. That's where we're going. To a place called Earth. It's interesting in the short story that Richard Matheson doesn't actually mention the name Earth. He just says... It's that planet that we're heading to, third from the sun, so he he makes the assumption that the readers will know that the third planet from the sun is Earth, but in the episode they actually say it explicitly. In the book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone by Douglas Brody and Carol Sailing, Brody makes quite a an interesting observation at the beginning of his little essay on this one. Older Zone fans who caught the series during its initial run remember this instalment warmly. New converts tend to find it disappointing. The problem does not exist in Richard Matheson's original short story, the teleplay sailing fashion from it, or the effective direction of Richard L. Bear. All were sound, beginning with the concept itself. Two families knowing that an all-out nuclear war will erupt in hours, fly away in a stolen test rocket. We assume that they are modern Americans and that the Cold War is about to get hot. One fellow explains to his friend that they're headed for a distant star where they will beam down on the third planet from the sun. It's called Earth. That line can elicit a guffaw today from naive viewers who wonder how did they dare use that old ploy. So Brody thinks it's that old thing of what was once original is now cliched and tired. Interesting, I don't know. I mean, there's been some talk about this episode on the Twilight Zone forum that you can access from the website where a couple of people said they found the main body of the episode a little dull, a little boring, but the twist saved it. For me personally... When I watched this one for the first time on the great DVD editions that came out a few years back, I didn't actually see it coming, I'll be honest. It was a total surprise to me. There are some episodes that I don't think I'd seen at that point where I could see the twist coming a mile off, but this one I didn't. And I think that's the beauty of the episode. It's it's so much concerning itself with the tension and creating this nail-biting atmosphere that... 
Again, if it works for you, you're not even thinking about looking for any twist. You're just caught up in the story of, are they going to get away? I'm no historian, but, you know, I do know that the Cold War was well and truly in effect back then. And, you know, nuclear war was a very real worry. So I would imagine that at the time, a lot of Americans would look at this and really identify with what was going on and not even give a second thought to the fact that they weren't watching planet earth on their television it's interesting though the thing is we don't know at what point in earth's history they're gonna land it could be the future it could be the past it could be any time but if it was the same time as the episode was broadcast in 1960 with the cuban missile crisis just a couple of years off they probably thought they jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire so yeah, I think this episode really works for me and I also think it's one of the high points of the season so far for me too. If we're keeping score, it's probably still The Lonely that's my favourite so far, but yeah, I, I like this one a lot. I think it's a beautiful tense piece and, you know, the twist is just the icing on the cake. Just a brief mention of the music, this is a Bernard Herrmann scored one. He used music from what's called his Outer Space Suite and this was a suite of music that he created that was supposed to be versatile and usable for multiple productions and we'll hear it throughout the Twilight Zone. If you remember one for the Angels, that last scene where Mr. Death is leading Lou off, that piece of music was from the Space Suite 2. But it is interesting how versatile it actually is and I'll, I'll try and point out in future when he's using it maybe because you'll see that this it's only 20 odd minutes of music I think altogether. He has created this thing that is really really versatile. But to just finish up this episode I'll, I'll read a little piece from, from Fritz Weaver who played Sturkin in the episode and this was from the 1984 Rod Serling retrospective at the Museum of Broadcasting. He said, I have vivid memories of Rod Serling during the making of the Twilight Zones I was in. He was hanging around like a kid on set, radiating excitement, having fun. He was generous to performers, he listened, he took suggestions, he gave everybody a free hand. His wide-ranging imagination allowed him to experiment to take chances and this was unique but one final interesting point is this is actually Stephen King's favorite episode or it was and he said most viewers can remember the snap of that ending to this day it was the episode which marks the point at which many occasional tuners in became addicts here for once with something completely new and different behind a tiny ship heading into space is a doomed planet on the verge of suicide. Ahead lies a place called Earth, the third planet from the sun. And for William Sturker and the men and women with him, it's the eve of the beginning in the twilight zone. I've got to admit I struggled a bit on that episode. I apologize if it comes off a, a bit uneven. For some reason it just didn't gel, you know, sometimes these things gel together and sometimes they don't. I think that's just just the way it goes sometimes. But anyway, I've got a couple of thank yous to make, as is usual, and this one's nice. This is on iTunes and it's from someone who goes by the name of 1970NC, but he also puts his name on there as Neil and he's a fellow 
fellow Merseysider, he's from Liverpool too, and he says some kind words about the podcast. So thanks a lot, Neil, appreciate it. It's, it's good to know that people close to home are listening too, so thanks for that. And another, another review stateside from Virginia Gale. She's also been a fan of the Twilight Zone for 40 plus years, and she says some kind words about the podcast too, so thank you, Virginia Gale, always appreciate it, and I'm glad you're enjoying it. Okay, I will just clear the decks of a few things. Um, I've mentioned that in the past that there is a link to a relatively new Twilight Zone forum on the site, dimensionxradio.com, and there's threads now on the site of every episode of the first season, so if you want to get in there and discuss those episodes, then by all means, pop on, join the forum, and uh, you know, let's talk about them. Also, we have on the site Chris's podcast, the Night Gallery podcast, and he's he's just starting season two of the Night Gallery, and it's not only interesting from the perspective of him talking about the episodes, but he's given history about the, the turmoil behind the scenes as well, which is unfortunate, but actually quite interesting to listen to as well. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that Sailing had to go through that, but it's a troubled show. But but when it worked, it, it really worked, and I really enjoyed the the first three main stories of season two. That um, that Chris has just covered the first one too, and he's going to be covering the others as well. The less said about the little mini episodes that happen in between, the better. But anyway, check Chris's podcast out, the Night Gallery podcast. It's there on DimensionXRadio.com. Also, we're putting out Dimension X at the moment, and down the line that will change into x minus one because the the two series have a sort of a link between them so we'll put them both in the same feed but it's starting out with dimension x and this is a great little sci-fi serial from the 50s really worth a listen if you've never listened to that kind of thing before i I recommend you check it out we've also got suspense on there a bit more hit and miss that one took me a couple of episodes to really get into it but i do actually find that i'm enjoying it now so i think they hit this stride about maybe four episodes in or so and uh, yeah so that's getting really good and i'm enjoying that too now i'll just finish off on a letter that i had from a gentleman by the name of mike lewis he said some kind words about the show so thanks for that mike but he also asks the question what do you think about the prospect of a new Twilight Zone movie? It's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. As we know, I think it's Leonardo DiCaprio's production company who have purchased the rights to be able to create this movie. For me, the Twilight Zone is and probably always will be mainly about that original series, the the 50s stroke 60s series that Rod Serling created, I find, now don't get me wrong, there were other people contributing to the show. People like Richard Matheson and so on, Charles Beaumont, you know, Buck Houghton as producer, uh, a lot of names contributing and so on, but, but Serling was always there, whether he wrote the episode or not, he was narrating it, and I personally never could quite get on board with the 80s series and especially the 2000 series. I will actually be revisiting the 80s series again soon, I think, just just out of my own curiosity, because a lot of people um, do hold it in quite high regard, as maybe it isn't the, the 60s show, but it works in its own right, and I'm quite 
I'm quite open to checking that out, so I will be going back to it. I do own all the DVDs just to just to see that. So my hopes for a movie would be that someone with a real kind of sharp vision for it that takes into account that that heritage of sailing series, but can really put an interesting spin on it. You know, there's some really smart directors out there at the moment, people like Christopher Nolan. Or if you look at the way J.J. Abrams did the Star Trek movie, you know, it had its, it had one foot in the past and one in the future kind of thing. And he, I thought he'd done that really well. And if someone could take the Twilight Zone and be really clever again with it like that, I would actually personally do it period, you know, do it as a period thing, but with the effects that we have today. And that's not to say it needs to be an ex- effects extravaganza. That's not it at all. But, you know, if you can do some really good kind of effects to complement that period setting, and if you could do that setting without it being hammy or silly, you know, be really smart about it. We were actually discussing this on the forum, and our friend Luke from the Collector's Room, the twilight zone-esque television show said what he thinks it needs is it needs a rod sailing it needs that presence there and i absolutely agree it it does need that kind of a presence there someone to take you through the twilight zone and you know the 80s series it was all done in voiceover by a couple of people if i remember rightly the the twilight zone movie had Burgess Meredith and the Lost Classics, that television special that they did. I haven't watched that, but I believe it was James L. Jones did it in voiceover. Um, I mean, the 2000 series, that was Forrest Whitaker, and that I think his narration was a disaster, personally. But yeah, again, you know, be smart about it. Get someone who fits, who's not doing a sailing imitation, but has a particular presence like he did, you know? It's it's going to be a tough one. I don't have all the answers, but, you know, I think hopefully I've put across generally what, you know, I hope it would be. And even though I I always think of the 60s stroke 50s, 60s series when I think of the Twilight Zone, whenever something else does happen, I do cross my fingers and really hope for the best and hope that they can pull it off and we can at least capture some of that magic but anyway that's enough from me and if you want to contact the podcast send in any feedback let us know what you think about the upcoming episodes or past episodes then do email me at feedback at the twilight zone podcast.com and next time we'll be discussing i shot an arrow into the air thanks a lot bye bye